Good morning, City Church. Let's try that again. Good morning, City Church. It's good to have you here this morning. And um, how about the weather that we've been having? Um, My wife and I, her her cousins are here from New Jersey and uh, was in his bucket list. It was not in my wife's. But uh, he wanted to go up in a hot air balloon. So we went up on Friday. We lived to tell about it. And uh, I think anyone who goes up in a hot air balloon, if you are not religious, you will be. (laughs) Not long in. Maybe not for the reason you think, though. I mean, the beauty of Charlottesville is absolutely stunning. And to kind of go up in this balloon and float for about 10 miles and see the beauty of it all and then crash land in a farmer's field is an amazing experience. So if you uh, haven't done that, I highly recommend it. Um, It's basically a one and done in life experience though, trust me. As you notice from the sermon bumper, we're in a sermon series on change, change. And the reason why we talk about it during this time of the year is because not only does the weather change, but life seems to change. Kids go back to school, UVA students come, other college students around online or at PVCC are getting re-engaged. It's that kind of that season whereby change sort of settles in. A lot of people have been getting employment in and around Charlottesville, moving to our city, and they kind of hit their stride in the fall. So we like to talk about change in the fall because it's important. Now, I need to remind all of us again, I do this in almost every sermon that I preach, and that is is that we are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church. Biblically-based means is that we look at Scripture and God reveals himself to us through Scripture. So we are biblically-based. Relationally-driven means this that we believe that relationship is the most important thing in life. Jesus taught that. Jesus said this. He said, love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He responded with that quotation to someone who asked him a question, and the question was, what's the most important law that there is? There are 613 laws in the Older Testament, and he responded by saying, love God, love people. In essence, what Jesus was teaching is that relationship is the most important thing in life. And then the last of our three pillars is simply this, that we are spirit-led. Jesus clearly taught that when he would exit and ascend to heaven, that he would send the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit would be here to empower us to live out what we learn through Scripture, through sermons, through our own daily devotionals, and that also the Holy Spirit would be here to help us in the midst of relationships. Because how many of you people know that there are people in your life where you need the power of God? How many of you know what I'm talking about? You can turn and look at that person right now and say, that is you. But when we talk about change, we talk about change. This morning, I want to bring to us, the sermon is going to be based on John chapter 4. And in John chapter 4, we meet a woman at the well, a woman at the well. And I think in this story, there are so many things when you preach sermons, this this episode in the life of Jesus is literally a gold mine 
from which you can bring out incredible truths through which the Holy Spirit empowers those in our lives and we live changed and transformed lives. But the woman at the well is a story that obviously involves a woman. But here's why that's so important. Because last Sunday, we looked at John chapter 3. So we're in John 4 this Sunday. Last Sunday, we were in John chapter 3. And the primary episode from John chapter 3 involves Nicodemus, a man. Nicodemus is Jewish. He's a religious leader. He's got his act together. He doesn't come to Jesus because of some dysfunction in his life or some addiction in his life or because something's wrong. He comes to Jesus because he's been observing him and he realizes this is someone you need to get to know. And he meets Jesus and he's one of the good guys. But in being a good guy, he's a Jewish man who follows all of the 613 laws. When he meets Jesus, Jesus says this to him and it's shocking. He says, Nicodemus, all the stuff you've ever done can't get you in. You must be born again. You must be born again. And you see, that was last Sunday. But what John does in the writing of his gospel, and by the way, if you've never read the Bible, I would encourage you to begin with the gospel of John. But what he does under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he takes the story of a man who's got his act together, and he's full of good deeds, and Jesus says, the good deeds can't get you in. It's faith in me. And then John chapter 4 uploads to us the story of a woman. Now, what's interesting, though, is that this woman has a life story that's filled with brokenness and heartache and pain. It's very different than Nicodemus's. Nicodemus is wealthy, powerful, he's at the top of her game, or his game, but when the woman at the well meets Jesus, she's in the midst of the sufferings of life. And as always, when I preach, I always bring the context, because context matters. But this time, context, context is more about contrast. Nicodemus and this woman. Nicodemus comes by night, she comes during the day. Nicodemus meets Jesus in town. She meets him in the desert. He approaches Jesus. Jesus approaches her. The other thing that's important is that he is Jewish and she's a Samaritan. A Samaritan is a person who's half Jew, half Gentile. Jews like Nicodemus would hate Samaritans because they viewed that they had turned sort of like Benedict Arnold against the Jewish faith and the Jewish nation by intermarrying outside their faith. Here's the other thing. He's a man. She's a woman. That's a bigger deal than you could ever imagine because Jewish men never speak to women other than their mother or their sisters, especially in public. But as we look at this, what we discover is Nicodemus is part of the in crowd. She is part of the out crowd. And to finalize the context for this morning's sermon, we end up by looking at the last two verses from the story of Nicodemus. It's the most famous verse in all of the Bible, John 3.16. Here's what it says to us. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only son that whoever, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Two things to remember from that passage, whoever, and Jesus did not come to condemn. And I believe that's why under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, John writes in John chapter 4 the story of the woman at the well, because she's a whoever. If she's in, anyone can be in. And not only this, Jesus never condemns her, but he saves her. The final thing we need to know about context is that this story takes place at a well. And you would say, duh, really? It's entitled The Woman at the Well. But the well matters. And here's why. It's Jacob's well. And if you were to read in the Older Testament, you would discover that in Genesis chapter 29, Jacob had met the love of his life, Rachel, at this very well. It's the ultimate love story in the book of Genesis. As a matter of fact, Genesis 29, 11 tells us this, that when Jacob saw her, she, he was at that well. She was bringing her family's animals to water them. And when Jacob saw her, here's what Genesis 29, 11 says that he did. I love this. It says, then Jacob kissed Rachel, and he began to weep out loud. Oh, baby, baby. It's this instantaneous love story where he sees her and he walks up to her and he grabs her and he kisses her and he weeps out loud. He's a real secure man. But what you have to understand is not only does he meet the love of his life at a well, but so did his dad. You see, you have Abraham, Isaac, in Jacob, and in Genesis 24, Isaac met the love of his life through a well, too. So what Jesus knows, she knows, and what she knows, Jesus knows, the woman at the well, is that when a man meets a woman at a well, her life changes. He knows she knows that. And so now we pick up our reading, and the Bible tells us that it is high noon, It's the heat of the day, and she is coming to get water. And all you need to know about this is, is in modern-day Palestine and in and around Israel, as well as almost anywhere in the world where women go to get water, they never get it alone. And also, they always go in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening. And all biblical scholars will tell you by the virtue of the fact that she's getting water at high noon, it means she's been shunned by the women around her. She's avoiding social pain by coming at noon to get water, and she does it alone. Let's pick up our story and let's read John 4, 4 through 28. It's more scripture than we normally read, but I think it's important for us to catch the story. Here we go. It says, now Jesus had to go through Samaria. By the way, in the original language, it means he was compelled. All other Jewish men would have gone around Samaria because they despised Samaritans. He was compelled by the Spirit of God to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. 
Remember that well. That's where Jacob met the love of his life. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. It was the heat of the day. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Basically, she's saying, Jesus, do you have heat stroke? Reading on, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. By the way, we have no clue how awesome it is to have indoor plumbing. And he told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Oftentimes, when God's presence or someone that walks with Jesus mentions something about someone else's life, they go for the diversion tactic. Jesus said, you've had five husbands, and she said, let's talk about theology. Jesus says this, verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. In other words, you're wrong. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will sit in the Martin Luther King Performing Arts Center and they will worship God. That's what Jesus said. He says, when true worshipers will actually begin to worship the God the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in, in the spirit and in truth. And the woman said this, I know that Messiah the Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and they were surprised to find Jesus talking with a woman. Remember, culturally he should never do that. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking to her? And then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town, and they made their way towards him. 
I hope you can catch the emotional arc of the story. When she first connects with Jesus, she is resistant. By the way, this is the path of faith that almost everyone takes. When she first meets Jesus, she is resistant, she pushes back, she's skeptical. But then Jesus begins a dialogue with her, and as he does, he reveals to her that he knows everything about her. And in the midst of that, she moves towards him in faith. And then stunningly enough, she leaves her water jar, and she runs to get all those people that she's been avoiding in her life. She tells them, you need to meet Jesus too. Please know this. The type of literature that the Bible is begs you to step into the story and live it for yourself. The way the Gospels are written, they are written in such a way where it calls you to step into the story and say, who am I like? If I were in the story, what would Jesus say to me? Maybe I'm standing on the well and I'm watching those two converse with each other. What would I think if I were there? That's how the Gospels are written. But you can see the emotional arc of the story. She meets Jesus, she's resistant, and by the end, she goes into town and she tells people to come meet him too. What I want to do now is very briefly, I want to move back through the story. I want to see where change happens and the change God wants to bring into our own hearts and lives. So I want to begin by rereading John 4, 4 through 9. Here we go. It says, now Jesus had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. It's a very holy place. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it's noon, the heat of the day. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? In Jewish law, if he drank that water, he would be defiled spiritually unclean, yet he asks her for the drink. And she, trying to warn him, says, you are a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, how can you ask me for a drink? You know what had to have stunned her is that Jesus had no prejudice. You talk about a change. You talk about change. Jesus Christ has no prejudice against her at all. She is among a people group that Jews despise and hate if they're from Jerusalem where Jesus is from. Jesus does none of that. There's no human prejudice. He simply asks her for a drink. Can you imagine, here's Jesus, God in the flesh, and he humbles himself and says, will you give me a drink? She's baffled. She's puzzled. But doesn't the love of God always do that? The love of God breaks through racism. The love of God breaks through bigotry. The love of God breaks through all of these things. And it's stunning. Because without God, we hate people just because of who they are. But with God, we're convicted against that. And Jesus comes to her. And when he does, he humbles himself and asks for a drink of water. And then in response to her resistance, 
Jesus goes on to say in John 4, 10 through 12, here's how it reads again. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and livestock? What's beginning to dawn on her is that Jacob has been the hero of her faith. Jacob has been that hero, that patriarch of her faith that she has followed and drawn strength from. If Jacob can wrestle with God and live, maybe I can too. And suddenly Jesus is there, and as he's in front of her, he begins to use an odd phrase, living water. Living water. Jesus said, if you would have known who I am, you would have asked me, and I would have given you living water. Here's what Jesus knows that she knows. There's a verse from Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, where the prophet in the Old Testament rebukes Israel. She would have read it. Jesus knew that she knew it. And here's what the prophet said from God to Israel. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, meaning God, and he defines himself as the spring of living water. And... They've also done this. They have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Jesus pulls a phrase, he knows, she knows. And it's about God being living water. The kind of water that truly gives you life. And then in John chapter 4 verses 13 through 15, Jesus goes on to explain it even further. And he says to the woman, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman who's not dumb says to Jesus, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's saying to Jesus, man, it'll make my life a whole lot simpler if I got the water you're offering versus the stuff that I have. What's amazing to me is Jesus does not respond to that comment. He says to her, go get your husband. Now that would seem like kind of an odd thing to say. But it's actually the socially polite thing to say. She's beginning to move towards him. And Jesus, who wants to remain pure and righteous, says to her, go get your husband. And she responds by saying, I have no husband. And then John 4, 17 through 19, Jesus answered her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had Five husbands, and the man that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you have read my mail. I can see that you are a prophet. Can you imagine? You step towards Jesus, and he knows the darkest, worst thing about you. He already knows. And he uploads that to her. 
and she diverts it again. She says in verse 25 and 26, I know Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he does, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared to her, I'm him. Look at the arc of this story. You've got a woman who's a far way from who Jesus is. Jesus finds her by the well. Jesus approaches her and begins to develop a relationship with her and speaks to her about the deepest truths of his life and the deepest truths of her life. That's what God does. Now at times at City, we have people that share their God story. The reason why we do this is because faith transforms lives. And what I know is there are people here at City who have come to Jesus just like the woman at the well, and they have found their lives transformed. So I've asked Stacy to come out, Kelly, Stacy Kelly to come out, and she's going to share her God story with us. Can everyone say, good morning, Tracy? You nervous? Mm, not so much now. Okay, good deal. I am. Oh, I'm just kidding. So I have asked you to come up and share your God story with us. So Tracy, can you kind of share about what it was like when you first came to City Church? I came, and the first thing that I encountered was welcoming people. From the minute you don't even come in the door, and they're hugging you, and they're welcoming you, like your family, you belong here. And then I started um, coming more regularly, and it just felt like this was a place that's family, that everybody loves you, that everybody has the same love for you, that, and you want to give that love to someone else. So, yes, this feels like home. Okay. So how long have you been at City? I got saved in January of 2017, and it's funny how you were mentioning the fight that the woman at the well had, because I sat all the way up there. Way up there? Way up there. Where and those people are uh, sitting? Way up no, there? No, no. Oh, okay. Back, little further back. Yeah, a little that? further okay. back. Okay. All right. And your sermon was a blessed 2017. And one of the things you said that struck me was if we were to align our lives with God's will, um, what that would look like. And maybe there's things that God's saying we need to let go of, whether there's bad relationships, bad, you know, just all kinds of awful shameful things that just holding you back. Maybe God's telling us at that point to let that go. So I was up there struggling with it. I was dancing in my chair and everything. My hands are sweating and everything. Right. Finally, before I knew it, the Spirit brought me down to the front. Gotcha. And at that point, I just said, God, I can't take this anymore. I can't take the guilt. I can't take the uh, shame. I can't take the burden of not being enough anymore, not being, uh, I want you to make a difference in my life. So at that point, my life changed. I got baptized, and that's why I love helping when, with the baptisms, because it brings that same saving, that same washing over me every time I do it, because I'm with someone else, and I just relive my own was very, very important for me. So I start serving. And the more you serve, if you're, if you're like an introvert or if you're like really normally shy and quiet, if you serve, 
You don't have to say anything. All you have to do is smile or give someone a hug or just, you know. Sure. And, and, it, and through serving and through meeting people, you kind of find mentors. I, I've found so many people that love Christ and who've gone through things. And so they, they support me. They encourage me. They, you know, pray for me. And that's so wonderful to have that kind of support system and mentors that you can you know, look, look toward for... Absolutely. Things. So when we met, you talked a little bit about, you just used the word shame, right? And when I think about the story of the woman at the well, there's something there as well for her. Can you tell a little bit about your life story, mm-hmm. just very briefly about your mom and some of the stuff that happened and then where God has freed you up yes. from that? So my mom died when I was 16, and I didn't realize it till I went to a woman's retreat that I was angry with God. I was like, why my mom? What did I do that was so wrong? Why did you take her and not, you know, some of these bad people? So I, I just said, God, I forgive you. And at that point, it's like the devil is such a liar because he says, even though you're saved, even though you get baptized, you know, he's still pointing that finger at you like, God's not really forgiven you because you didn't, you know, you still did this. Remember, you still did this. But I'm a child of God. I was, Christ died and shed his blood for my sin. I accepted that and I asked him to come and take that shame and that guilt away. I'm not perfect. Shame is something that we have to fight every day. Okay. Because Satan's going to say, you know, you're not good enough today. You didn't work hard enough today. You didn't pray hard enough today. You weren't nice enough today. You, you know, just all kinds of things that you don't, he wants to tell you, you didn't do good enough. Sure. And it's like, it's, it's a constant, constant, I need to remember I'm a child of God. I'm his prized possession. He thinks about me uh, often, or every day, all day. Uh, I'm saved. I'm loved. I'm cherished. And... You know, it's something that I have to repeat to myself every day. And one of my favorite verses now is Psalms 34, 7. It says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. So I'm going to work thinking, all right, I got one over there. I got one over here. And, and you know, nothing is going to bother, you know, me and not affect me in a negative way today. It's just like I have to keep repeating that I have Christ with me through everything at work, through everything at home, through, you know, anything that we cannot handle on our own. We need to give that to Christ, and he will strengthen us. He will deliver us. He will, you know, keep us remembering that we're, we're his child, and he died for us. He loves us, and it doesn't matter what we've done. Yes, we're not perfect. We never will be. But, you know, we're, we're still his child, and he loves us, and he's forgiven us for all those things. And it's just like it's, we need to remember that day in and day out. Sure. So you had referenced when we met that after your mother passed that you kind of filled your life with some things to try to feel loved and to try to feel connected. And then as you came towards Jesus, that shame piece became kind of a big thing in your life, mm-hmm. right? Where you were dealing it with your self-worth and all of that. And then when you met Christ, you found him taking that shame away and freeing you up and setting you free. What would you say to someone who's sitting in this auditorium, who is battling with that same thing? They look in the rearview mirror of their life, 
They look at some of the things they've done, some of the places they've been, and they look at this holy God, and they're going, how in the world could God ever love me? What would you say to that person very briefly? How would you respond to that type of thing? Because I know you had to work through that as well. So what would you say to those people that are sitting here that are struggling with the same thing? I have been there. I have been to the point where I felt... Why am I even here? What, what, what does it matter whether I'm here or not? And then I think now that I have kind of like processed some of these things that uh, God has a plan for me. And if I can, you know, smile, if I can love someone, if I can, you know, share what I have gone through and the, the way that I have felt, the things that I have done, just to feel love. You cannot feel the love that God can fill you with. There is nothing on this earth that will fill you and satisfy you and supply that need for love and the need for acceptance and the need for forgiveness and the need for that you are enough. There, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. Well, thank you, Tracy, for sharing that. Let's give her a hand. Thank you very much. God bless you. Yes. It was so sweet, she leaned over and said, can I go now? (laughs) You see, when we look at the story of the woman at the well, when we look at it, what amazes me, and Tracy's been through this, When you look at the woman at the well, what stuns me is her reaction. As a matter of fact, John chapter 4, verses 28 through 30, and here at City, we always talk about putting feet to our faith. What does it mean to actually walk this out? Well, when the woman at the well meets Jesus, here's what it tells us she did in verse 28 of John chapter 4. Here's what it says. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of town and made their way toward him. Now, I'm not the smartest guy in the room by any stretch, but here's what I do know. One of the hurdles for people to come to faith is this. God really knows everything there is to know about me. Does he really? And if he does, how could he ever love me? How could he ever accept me? But I want you to notice her report to the people she's been avoiding because of her guilt and her shame. She's been ostracized because of her five husbands and she's living with a guy now. I want you to notice what happens. She goes to them, and here's what she says. Come and see the man that told me everything I ever did. I want you to know something. When you meet Jesus, he knows everything you've ever done. And notice he even uploads it to her. He tells her the deepest, darkest, most dysfunctional, broken thing of her life. And he says to her, you've been married five times. And she, out of joy, goes to those other people. Says, you got to meet him too. If you meet him, 
He'll tell you everything you ever did. And they're thinking, I'm not going. I'm staying right here. But look what they all did. The Bible says they all begin to move towards Jesus. Why is that? You see, there's a kind of love that surpasses human love. It's the love of Christ. And when Jesus meets us, he doesn't ignore our sin and our brokenness and our dysfunction. He sees it. He knows that it's there. But when he brings it to our attention, it doesn't destroy us. It doesn't drive us from God. It actually draws us in. There was something about the way Jesus communicated with her that she knew she'd finally met a man who knew everything about her. Yet he was loving her purely, purely. He wasn't going to use her and abuse her. He loved her purely. And because of that, she's being drawn to God. I have a very simple question. It's this. Have you allowed Jesus to speak to you this way? I know by the sheer numbers of people that are here that the Holy Spirit's touching hearts and lives. I know this. There are some of us that are here that feel the drawing towards who God is. I want you to know that there's a God who knows everything about you. His love is greater than where you've been and what you've done. But he also loves you too much to leave you in the same place. He has the power to love us through it and then to transform us. This story ends by the Bible telling us a paragraph after the story ends that the people come out, they meet Jesus, they ask him to stay in their hometown, and they say to her, they say this, we came to meet him because you told us about him, but now we believe for ourselves. Here's what's stunning. In the Gospel of John, the first Billy Graham is a woman who's been married five times. She's the first evangelist. She's the first one that carries the gospel and people come to faith. The reason why I want to mention this is because some of you know God's been calling you. He's been calling you to share your faith and you think, I don't know enough. We live in a city where you have to have a PhD in order to collect the trash. You ever notice that? But Jesus uses anyone. All it takes is to you have an experience with him where your sin comes out, you know he knows, and then he cleanses you from sin. This is an incredible story of change. There's none like it. None like it. I want to encourage you as we now stand together, and as we stand together, that you would take an opportunity to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart and to your life. These are those moments that God orchestrates supernaturally. Picture this now that you're at the well and Jesus comes to you and asks you for a drink and then begins this dialogue about who he is. And at the end of which, he doesn't ignore our sin, but he loves straight through it and transforms us. Can we take a moment and close our eyes in God's presence? And as we do, I'm going to ask that you would invite the Holy Spirit to begin to do a work in your heart, 
and in your life.